Well, we're going to remain frozen in time for another week. We're still on the cross where last we had with Jesus. And, and we're doing this on purpose. We're doing this intentionally. Jesus is nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And he doesn't die until 3 p.m. So we're spending a six-week series on six hours of actual human history. And the reason we're doing that is because it's the most significant six hours in human history, followed by the most significant day, the resurrection, in human history. That's why we're spending all of this time on it. And, And it is incredibly significant. Just think about how we count time. We count time based on Christ. How is our week shaped based on these events? These are incredibly significant to the world at large and definitely to those of us who are being saved. It is incredibly significant to us. Let's look at our verse. Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 46. This is our saying this morning. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Chronologically, this is the seventh saying. So this is the last saying chronologically. The reason we're looking at it now is because we want to really impact folks on Easter Sunday with it is finished. But this saying is very close seconds from Jesus saying it is finished. He says that in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So our saying in Luke and the saying in John blend closely together with us. What Luke has given us is what Jesus said in between, it is finished, and the actual giving up of his spirit. That's the blessing that we have with four gospel accounts. The four gospels give us the narrative of Jesus' life in surround sound stereo. So we're hearing All of what happened according to Jesus's documented life from all different, from four different perspectives to pick it all up. A a tool I would recommend to you guys is the tool called a gospel harmony. It's just a book where, where somebody has put together all four gospel accounts of events. So some pages will have four columns the way Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the same thing. Some pages it's only John because only John talks about that recording. It's an incredibly helpful tool especially when you're trying to establish timelines. So I'd recommend that to you guys as well. But before we get into the meat of what we're talking about, kind of what we've been doing is asking these sayings hard questions. Before we do that, we need to note something significant, that Jesus, as a man, the Son of Man, was a man of prayer. He was absolutely a man of prayer. And you just all felt really convicted right then. The easiest way to clean out your church is to do a sermon series on prayer, tithing, and evangelism. <laughs> Preach on that and nobody's coming back. But we, ha- we can't avoid prayer. We can't avoid Jesus' example of prayer. We can't ignore this as a vital discipline of the Christian life. I was reading uh, something online about a pastor wrote. He said, we should be shocked and terrified of all of the things that we accomplish without praying. And we should. That's very true. And Jesus modeled the opposite of that. He lived on prayer. Let me give you a few examples from Matthew 14, 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1.35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. 
Luke 5.16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6.12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. John chapter 17 is 26 verses of one prayer. That Jesus and that John 17 passage, he's in the upper room the night before he's going to be crucified. He spends 26 verses, that much time, just having his disciples listen to him pray. He lived on prayer. He he imbibed deeply in the pool of prayer. When the first Adam was in the first garden and he was faced with a spiritual fork in the road, he forsook prayer, listened to his gut, and sin became on all of us. But when the last Adam was in the garden and faced with a spiritual crossroad, he prayed so hard that the ends of his capillaries burst and blood came out of his pores. Jesus is that last Adam in the garden of Gethsemane praying. He was not going to try to navigate this crucifixion moment without beseeching the God of heaven. He models prayer for us. And so why mention this in this saying and in this series? Because this saying from Luke 23 is a prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Three of the seven sayings that Jesus speaks from the cross are prayers. He starts with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he ends, this is the last one, with, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we're supposed to hear this as prayer, and we must conclude that a daily, a regular habit of prayer is what will see us through real struggles, real pain, and real trials. So we got to note that beforehand. So let's ask our questions now to this text. Let's ask the first one. Who was in control in the final seconds of Jesus' earthly breath? Who was in control? Because he says... I commit my spirit. So who's in control of this death? The death of Jesus is a wonderfully perplexing, perplexing reality in Scripture. We need to see this reality because who's responsible for it? Well, in one sense, it's very obvious that evil men are responsible for it. Acts 2, 23, Peter's preaching and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in another sense, it's God's responsibility. God has done this. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and verse 10. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So it's definitely wicked men. It's definitely the Father. And it's also undeniably Jesus voluntarily turning it over himself. Look at John 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father and the writer of Hebrews echoes a similar sentiment in chapter 9 verse 14 when he says how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God that Jesus offered himself he laid it down no one took it from him 
And also God sent him to that. And also evil men did that. So when somebody comes to us and says, well, who's responsible? Was it the Jews, the Romans, was it God, was it Jesus himself? We just say, yes. <laughs> yes, it was all of the above. Because that's what the Bible leaves us with. We don't have to reconcile that away. We can just let it be. We can let that exist. That all of that is true. The Bible, if the Bible is not regularly blowing our minds, then we're doing it wrong. We need to see these things. Because no passage exists in a vacuum. So what we had to do to make sense of this, we had to go and see what Isaiah wrote and what Peter preached and what John had recorded that Jesus said so that we can further understand what Luke had written about what Jesus had said. All of these passages came to bear upon the saying of Jesus that we could understand it further because no passage exists as an island unto itself. That we can't do that. Bible study is done with the whole in light of the parts and the parts in light of the whole. That is systematics. That is the methodology that we are using during this sermon series. The whole and part of the, in light of the parts and the parts in light of the whole. We're bringing it all to bear on these things because the Bible speaks clearly to those things. So let us then be clear. Jesus was not struggling on the cross. He did not demand a fair trial because by Jewish law, the trial that he got was illegal. It happened at night and it wasn't under proper circumstances. He didn't demand a fair trial. He also wasn't provided a lawyer by the state, nor did he demand it. He also didn't protest and invoke the First Amendment and say, you're trampling on my free speech. Because why was Jesus being crucified? Was it for what he did or for what he said? In John chapter 10, the Pharisees pick up stones and they're going to pummel Jesus to death with rocks. And he says, for what good work are you stoning me? And they say, we're not stoning you for a good work. We're stoning you for what you said because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So Jesus was crucified in the eyes of humanity by what he said because everybody likes the guy who provides free food and free health care. But you kill the guy who says, I'm God, and there's no other way to God but through me. So that's why he was being killed. So he doesn't invoke these First Amendment rights. He doesn't struggle on the cross and fight for life's breath. He chooses when to stop breathing. You and I don't get that option. That last breath is forced on us in one way or another. We don't get to choose that. And he dies faster than the other two men. Because they come and they break the legs of the other two guys and they get to Jesus and he's already dead. He died before them, not because they were in better physical condition, but because he was in control. And he lays down his life voluntarily. Dying men don't shout clear, coherent, logical statements and then immediately die right after that. But the God man did do that and can do that. So he was in control to the end. And what we have to ask this too is when we get to this statement, it says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So did Jesus have a spirit? We have to make sense of that. We have to reconcile that. And this question forces us to wade back into the hypostatic union. But that's how we have Jesus and humanity existing in union. That's what that's called. It forces into that. And Easter does, period. Because in Easter, we have to reconcile the reality of how can God die? 
So Jesus says, I, into your hands I commit my spirit. What we have to first establish is this is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus has never and will never be separated from the Holy Spirit in any way. So it's not that. But secondly, we have to ask is, can Jesus be fully human without having a human spirit? Because you and I certainly do have spirit or soul, whichever one you want to call it. We do have those. Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says in a similar fashion, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. How can I be away from my body and be somewhere else unless we're talking about my spirit? So clearly we believe that we as humans do have a spirit, but does Jesus have that spirit? Now what we're about to do is we're going to wade deeper into these theological waters. So come come on with us. If you got to hold on to the side of the pool, that's okay. Just get out in the deep water with us. Just hang, hang through this for a second. So Jesus, who is fully man and also fully God, must have had a human spirit. Must have had a human spirit. And this human spirit was not a replacement in the divine nature of the second member of the Trinity, but it was an addition to him. Because, and it has to be. Because the Son of Man does not redeem anything that he does not assume. So if he does not assume all that we are as humans, including a spirit, then he cannot and does not redeem that. So he must have had a human spirit. It, what didn't happen at the incarnation was we had the divine and we had the human and it comes together in the womb of Mary and it so mixes and mingles that it becomes a third new essence. That doesn't happen at the incarnation. That's, that's not what happened. That's actually a heresy called Eutychianism that was condemned as a heresy by the church at the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451. That you cannot have divine and human come together and make a third new thing. That can't be that. So it's not like the, the chemistry behind, of, behind table salt. Table salt is the periodic elements of sodium and chloride. I didn't know that this week. My brother was a chemistry major at A&M, so I called him. And I also used to cheat off of him in high school, even though he's younger than me, but I repented of that, so it's okay. <laughs> so I called him and asked him, hey, what, tell me something about this. And so he told me that when sodium and chloride come together, they form a new third thing that is neither sodium nor chloride. It's table salt now. And you can't pull it back apart. That's not what happened with Jesus at the incarnation, when he becomes flesh, it didn't just blend all together and intermingle so much that it makes a third new thing. That did not happen. So what we have to do then as students of the Bible and as followers of Jesus is we have to distinguish and define what we mean when we say the person of Christ and the nature of Christ. So we have to define what person is and what nature is. So Louis Burkhoff, the theologian, said... That nature denotes the sum total of all the essential qualities of, of a thing, that which makes it what it is. So nature, all the sum total qualities of a thing that makes it that thing. So what person, person denotes a complete substance endowed with reason and consequently 
a responsible subject of its own actions. So Jesus' person can be and must have been in a mingling of humanity and divine, but his natures did not intermingle and become a mixture and making some third new thing. So that didn't happen at the incarnation. He was still fully God and fully man because a mixed nature is a logical and is a practical impossibility. Because if you mix humanity and divinity, then you have finite becoming infinite and infinite becoming finite at the same time, and that's impossible. That can't happen. So we have to have say that they are separate, but they are together. The two natures within the person of Christ. So if Jesus' natures were mixed, then he would cease to be God and he would cease to be man. But scripture insists that he is both. So we hold to that. Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, summarized it like this. Hang through this. He says, the elements united or combined in his person are two distinct substances, humanity and divinity. That he has in his constitution the same essence or substance which constitutes us as men and the same substance which makes God infinite, eternal, and immutable in all his perfections. This union is not a mixture so that a new third substance is produced which is neither humanity or divinity but possessing the properties of both. So therefore, we have to arrive at the fact that Jesus did have a human spirit, and he did release that human spirit when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So therefore, his body is separate from his spirit when the body's in the tomb and the spirit is with the Father until they're reunited again on Sunday. And that's the truth that's going to happen for us, too. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about the bodily resurrection. So our, our bodies and spirits are separate upon our death. When we go to our spirit goes to heaven, our body stays in the dirt, and then we're reunited at the second coming of Jesus Christ when we're given perfect bodies. So let's wade back out of that water, okay? Let's all get back to the end where we can all stand up. You, got, you did good hanging through that. The third thing that we need to ask this question, this, this phrase is, what does it mean that Jesus commits his spirit to the Father. What does that mean? That he commits his spirit to the Father. So the, the Christian standard Bible says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. That's a helpful translation. I entrust my spirit because the Greek word for commit is peritithomai. And it means to commend, to give charge of, to deposit, to commit. That's what that word means, to, to give over. To deposit. So Jesus, as fully man, is clear to whom his spirit has been entrusted. There is no panic. There is no fear. While he is upon that cross, as fully man, as to his future. He doesn't have to be panicked in that he knows that he has deposited his spirit with the Father. And the Father is faithful to carry out what he has promised. So this statement then is a, a statement of a pre-existing reality. It's not a beckoning for God to act or a call for God to respond. It's not that. Jesus or Stephen says something similar to this in Acts chapter 7. So Stephen's a deacon and he starts preaching and doing a lot of great stuff. And then in chapter 7 they say, we're going to kill you. So they stone him to death by pummeling him with rocks. And in that moment, in chapter 7, verse 59, he says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
It's very similar to what Jesus said. So was Stephen in that moment, was he unsure about his salvation? No. He's not unsure about his salvation. Let me illustrate it like this. When you go to the pool as a father with children, you always want to teach your kids how to jump off into the pool, right? And so when, when the child is standing on the edge of the pool and the dad is standing in the water with hands out, what does the kid always say? Daddy, catch me. Daddy, catch me. Why does she say that? She knows what the process is. She knows what we're doing here. She's not unsure about what the, what concrete does. She's not unsure about what the side of the pool is. She's also not confused about the loving embrace of her father, right? She's experienced that to some degree before going to the pool. So she's not confused about that. She's not confused about where she stands at that moment. What she's uncertain of is the airtime, right? The airtime and the water. So she says, Daddy, catch me. And if you're a dad who's gone to the pool and you love your children, you're not unaware of their ability to swim and they're hanging on the edge of the pool. So you're not having to be woken up going, oh, no, you're paying attention, right? So that's not a call to arms. Ah, like, oh, maybe I should. I don't know if I'm going to catch her or not this time. Well, she asked for it, so I guess I'll catch her. That's not, that's not the moment. So the, where is the unsurety? It's just in the child. Just, I'm going, I'm jumping to you. Daddy, catch me. It's not a question or a call to arms. It's a self-assurance, almost. She needs to hear that being said. She needs to hear herself say that, though she knows that daddy doesn't drop her. And that daddy's arms are strong enough to hold her when she makes the jump, when she goes through the air and skims the water into the father's arms. She's not unsure of that. So Jesus didn't need to be prompted by Stephen saying that in Acts 7 in order to be ready for Stephen's death and to be able to receive him. He wasn't being, he wasn't unaware. He's been waiting for that moment where Stephen transitions into glory. And likewise, Jesus on the cross, he's not rousing the father to act. Hey, wake up. I'm coming. It's almost, I'm almost there. That's not what was happening in that moment. We needed to hear that being said. Jesus is not unclear about the properties and the realities and the character of God. We needed to hear that because we are finite beings and we are easily distracted by the wind and the waves instead of having our eyes locked upon the Savior. So he says that for us as a statement of reality, but for us to know that when we jump that chasm, the unknownness of it, we know that we will be held. That whom we have entrusted our spirit to and with whom we have deposited it, he is faithful to carry out what he promised to us upon conversion. That's why Jesus says that. That's why we needed to hear that. So then we have to end up with this question is, why is Jesus able to resign so assuredly in the Father's reception of his spirit? How can he be so confident about that? How is he able to just know that's going to happen? So in seeking our answer, we have to turn to Scripture, as we always must. And when we do that, we end up in the Psalms. Jesus again quotes from the Psalms on the cross, 
by no accident. And we need to note this too, just as a side note, Jesus speaks Psalms from the cross and most of what he quoted when he did quote scripture in his life was from the Psalms. We need to be pouring over the Psalms. We need to be studying those Psalms because if Jesus is God himself and when he comes upon earth, everything he says is Bible because Jesus, according to John 1, is in fact the word of God, the divine logos. So he could have spoken in new revelation all the time and we'd have been writing all of it down because everything that Jesus speaks is Bible. But he chose to speak abundantly in words that were already written down in black ink and white paper. He chose to do that a whole lot. So we must note that, that if the Son of God, when he becomes a man, speaks in Bible, we should be speaking in Bible as well. So the psalm that Jesus quotes is Psalm 31, verse 5. It says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Why is Jesus able to die in blessed assurance? Because he knows his Father is the faithful Redeemer of Psalm 31, verse 5. He quotes the first half of that psalm, into your hands I commit my spirit, so that the Jewish mind and thus the Christian mind goes to Psalm 31, verse 5 and sees how the verse ends. That he can rest in it because he knows God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And our hope in this faithful God is a confident hope. Romans 5 says, through him we have also obtained access by faith. 5 verse 2, into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope, Christian hope, does not put us to shame. We do not use hope correctly. Christian hope is not blind wishing. And we've diminutively used the word hope in our vernacular to mean just kind of wishful thinking. Like, I hope the baby sleeps tonight. Or, I hope the Texans use their draft picks wisely this year. We all know that there's a 75% chance of both of those things never coming true. They're just going to draft another defensive end again. We know that that's, so we use hope incorrectly. We, we rob it of what it truly is because Christian hope is anchored in the character of God. Christian hope is the expectant, confident anticipation of a coming reality. We're not wishing for anything. There is no chance of it not happening. Our hope will not put us to shame, like Paul says in Romans 5. That's how the Christian can die in total peace. That's how Jesus can die in total peace. Because we have a confident hope. The Catholic dies in total questioning, uh, what, if I, what if I wasn't good enough and I had to spend purgatory forever? The Muslim dies in absolute fear of good works gone undone and then being punished by God for that. The, the Hindu dies in fear of being vindictively reincarnated by some impersonal force called karma. And the atheist dies in fear of sheer terror of the unknown. But not so for Christians. 
Christians, we die in confidence, knowing our hope is built on nothing less. That's why the Christian can say with Jesus and Stephen after him, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, hey, God, please catch me because I don't think you're going to, but I've never gone through the death journey before, but I know who's on the other side of that. That, That's how we can die, that upon death's threshold, I can be confident that the Lord will receive me on that bank of the Jordan and carry me across to the promised land. I can be confident of that as a Christian. So in conclusion, John Calvin says at this moment, he says, For there could not have been a more splendid triumph than when Christ boldly expresses his assurance that God is the faithful guardian of his soul, which all imagined to be lost. When Jesus is on that cross, his disciples, his followers, people who are intrigued by him are just wondering, is it over? Is it done? Is he lost? And his antagonists, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the Herodians are saying, it's done, it's over, see, look, he didn't win, his soul is lost. But Jesus can say right before that last breath leaves his lungs, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. In full confidence that that's the last thing everybody around that cross on Golgotha heard him say. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He can die in confidence. There's no stronger or more decided testimony of faith than when someone boldly and loudly rests in the hope of God. There's no stronger testimony than that. And the begotten son modeled that hope, that faithfulness to us, the adopted sons and daughters. He models that on the cross for us. And it only takes belief in him for that promise of being caught On the other side, that promise is obtained through belief. That if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you you repent of the sinfulness, then you shall be saved. That you can confidently say, Daddy, catch me. As you jump across the water and the air into his arms. That's all it takes for that to be obtained. And when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, his goodness and all that he is is put on us in the eyes of the Father that we could confidently sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I have no hope in anything else but that. And we can, we can sing in every high and stormy gale. It's a fancy way of saying a thunderstorm. My anchor holds within the veil. When you anchor your ship... You don't want that anchor to move. Our anchor is going to hold. No matter how the wind howls or the waves thrash, it's going to hold. We can sing that honestly and joyfully. And we can also sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That I have no fear in standing before the throne of God because I'm dressed in Christ's righteousness alone. That's the only thing I'm wearing in front of the God. And we can rest in that. Let's rest in that this Easter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truths provided to us in your word this morning. We thank you for the abundance of the biblical witness of Jesus. We thank you for the abundance 
of the truths that we can find, that we can have hope that will not embarrass us, that we are not blindly wishing in some supposed Savior, but we know that He is sufficient to do the work, that He was fully man, who did have a spirit, who did bodily die, and then rose again in triumph, in ultimate victory over all evil and sin. Thank you for showing us that always in Scripture. And thank you for showing us that today. Thank you for letting us gather today and focus on those truths this morning. We thank you, Father. Be with us this Easter week in Christ's name. Amen.